Before you open up, I'm going to start off with a question, and I want you to give me your first answer off the top of your head. I myself am in a transition phase now. I might be able to go through the message today like I've done my whole life without glasses, <laughs> but I might not. <laughs> and more and more often at home, I'm having to start looking for them. <laughs> and I, I have a feeling you're going to tell me it's all downhill from here. So here's my question. John 10, the Good Shepherd, when you think of some of those lovely verses that you might know about that chapter, if I ask you, who is the audience, before you look, who do you think it is? Myself, I always picture him talking to the disciples. I am the Good Shepherd. I know my own and they all know me. They, the sheep here, they know the shepherd's voice. And I always picture him with the disciples around him. And I think oftentimes we do this. I know some of you follow a regular Bible reading plan, and that's a good thing. When you read a chapter here in the Old Testament and then another one in the New Testament, and we, it's a good thing to progress through. Other times, some of us get into one book for quite a while. That's a good thing. But don't you sometimes, whether it's your first time reading that day or maybe you've had a difficult week and you haven't read at all in a couple days and you just say, I just want to open up and read an encouraging chapter. Have you ever done that? You might read Psalm 23 or John 15, the vine and the branches or whatever one might be your favorite. And some of these chapters... We, we don't really look at the context a whole lot. And if you're like me, you, you may have thought of Jesus saying that he's the bread of life in John 6. And you picture the disciples listening to this. That chapter ends with disciples walking away from him, withdrawing from following him. When we get to John 8, when Jesus says he is the light of the world, and he says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. Do you remember how John 8 ends? That chapter ends with people picking up stones to stone the Lord Jesus. And when we get to John 10 today, we're going to take some time, uh, besides this section, and looking at the whole context of how the different chapters in John fit together. In his public ministry of John chapter 1 through chapter 12. So, if you're taking notes this morning, uh, a simple thing you could do along with me would be to give a line for each chapter, chapters 1 through 12, and we'll just divide up the sections a little bit and uh, observe how it goes with the Lord's public ministry, especially focusing on whenever he goes down to Jerusalem. So first we might look at chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. They go together. And in John 1, the Lord Jesus, after that very profound intro, when his ministry starts and John the Baptist announces him as the Lamb of God, he's at Bethany beyond the Jordan, and the first disciples come to him. Andrew and John, Philip, Andrew, Peter, Nathaniel, and those are quite interesting to look at. And it, the, the gospel opens very nicely. These disciples come to him. Then chapter 2, we have two locations. We have Cana up in Galilee in the north, and that's where Jesus turns the water into the wine at the wedding. And his disciples believe in him. And that starts off very well. He does a miracle. And he does it rather privately, doesn't he? He doesn't do it boastfully. And there's faith in him. But when he goes down to Jerusalem, the Lord Jesus has a rather interesting way of announcing himself, doesn't he? 
He cleanses the temple, overturns tables, knocks things over, makes a very big scene. And this upsets those who are there, of course. Notice they don't rebuke him because I believe inside they're convicted that he is right and they are wrong, but they demand to know his authority for these things and they question him. By what authority do you do these things? And he makes that dramatic statement to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. So that's the start of things in Jerusalem. In chapter 2 he's questioned and then I believe chapter 3, when he speaks to Nicodemus, it must still be somewhere in Jerusalem or around there. And that's a private conversation. And then in John 4, that's another private conversation when he goes, starts going northward to Samaria, right? And he meets the woman at the well, and he asks her for a drink. And he has this profound conversation with her. But that's a private conversation, and that chapter also ends well as the people of Samaria come to believe in him. And then he does another miracle in Cana. So that's the chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. And we remark again in Jerusalem, it was a controversial start, was it not? And they question him. Now when we get to John 5, the Lord Jesus is going down to Jerusalem for the second time, and he heals a lame man. And this causes problems for two different reasons. Because the Lord not only healed this man on the Sabbath, and that was a problem, but he said, my father is working until now, and I myself am working. That was a big problem, the Lord saying that. So we read in John 5.18, For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. All right, people want to downplay whatever the Lord Jesus thought about himself, and they might say that's just a figure of speech. God is everybody's Father. Well, the Jews understood exactly what he meant. By him calling God his own father, that was making himself equal with God. And so when we get to John 5, as we read that they were persecuting Jesus for these two reasons. And there's a lot more said in John 5. Then in John 6, we're back up north at the Sea of Galilee. And we'll just observe there uh, where the Lord is. And John 6. So he feeds the 5,000, and that goes well. And then the Lord walks on water. And a little verse there, because I'm just focusing a lot on location now. In John 6, 17, they were starting to cross the sea to Capernaum. And so I, the way I understand it is they were going back west across the sea to Capernaum. And there the Lord walks on water. And then when he gets to the other side, we in John 6 there, I believe he is there in Capernaum as he gives those words to them. And there, there, there are very beautiful words in John 6, but we get to the end that many disciples withdraw from him in John 6, verse 66. Um, but we're going to just say that these two chapters go together, John 5 and 6, because he went down to Jerusalem in 5, then he went back up north to Galilee in John 6, where we have the miracles of the 5,000 being fed and the Lord walking on water. Now, where we're going to focus today is this next section, John 7, 8, 9, and 10. And we're just going to build up to chapter 10 and really try to see the context of him being there in Jerusalem. And before we do that, we'll just say in John 11 and 12, the Lord is somewhere in John 11. It doesn't quite say where when that chapter starts, but the Lord gets news that Lazarus is sick, 
and he delays a couple of days, and then he goes down to Bethany, raises Lazarus from the dead, and then in John 12, he goes to Jerusalem where there's the triumphal entry. Um, Brother Vine, in his five-volume set, makes a great statement about the, the resurrection of Lazarus. He says, that was the crisis of the Lord's dealings with the Jews. So after that miracle happens, they, they plot to kill him, and that's a real crisis point. And then, of course, we know in chapter 12 at the triumphal entry, that sets the stage then really for the final week because John 13 through 16, that is all the private times that the Lord has with the disciples. We call the upper room ministry, then his prayer to the Father in John 17, and then in 18 comes all the dramatic ending of his arrest and trial, and then going before Pilate and his crucifixion, death and resurrection. But let's go back now to John 7, 8, 9, 10, and just focus a little bit on location. So John 7 and we read here, after these things, John 7, verse 1, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the, Jew, of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. His brothers want him to go up, but he does not. But then in verse 10, when his brothers had gone up to the feast, he went, also went up, not publicly, but as if in secret. So the Lord now is in Jerusalem for the third time, and that's where he is in uh, John 7. And uh, there's division over him mentioned a couple times in John 7. We can see that in verse 12, and then later on in verse 43. And in John 7, the last day of the great feast, in verse 37, the Lord stands and cries out and says, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. So the Lord now is in Jerusalem, and we'll just jump over to John 8 now, and we read in verse 1 that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. And in verse 2, he was in the temple and early in the morning, when the woman caught in adultery is brought before him. And after that discussion, he makes a profound statement, an I am statement, saying, I am the light of the world. And if we just were to skim through John 8, we'll see that the tension of that chapter builds and builds and builds. Sometimes a really interesting thing to do when you start slowing down to study more is you look at, the, if you have a red-letter Bible, you look at the other verses, and you just take note at what the others are saying. And as you skim through John 8, we might do that for a moment, and we see uh, after the Lord says that he's the light of the world, look what the, the Pharisees say in 13. You are testifying about yourself. Your testimony is not true. So the Lord answers them. In 19, they say, where is your father? Then in 20, he spoke this in the temple, and no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. So we see that's their intention. 22, the Jews were saying, surely he will not kill himself, will he? And then down in 25, who are you, they demand. And then later, as he says, if you know the truth, the truth will make you free. They object in 33. We are Abraham's descendants. We've never been enslaved to anyone. So how can you say this? They object again in 39. Abraham is our father. And then in 41, they slander him. We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Then in 48, they say, do we not rightly say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? I mean, now they're just really name-calling. They object again in 52. Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you're not greater than our father Abraham. 
who died, the prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? And then the Lord will finish that answer by saying, Before Abraham was born, I am. And they pick up stones to stone him. So John 8 ends very dramatically. Now we're in John 9. And as I've skimmed over this chapter, we don't read anything about location. So I believe the Lord is still here in or around Jerusalem. And the story of the man born blind, we could take the whole hour on that, of course, a great story. But that man, as he answers question after question about who healed him and who the Jesus is and who he must be, he starts to defend Jesus more and more up until the point where they kick him out of the synagogue. Now let's find that verse. In verse 34, well, let me, let me highlight what the man says. He says in 11, and this would be a very nice study to look into about how the man progressively says more and more about who Jesus must be. In verse 10, they say, how then were your eyes opened? And he says plainly in 11, the man who was called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes, said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and I received sight. And then later on in 17, they ask him again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he's a prophet. So after they talk to his parents for a while, they come back to him. And he says in 27, I told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become his disciples too, do you? They get very angry. And they speak badly of the Lord. And then the man says, well, here is an amazing thing that you do not know where he is from. Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. So that's what he progresses further to say, that, that Jesus must be God-fearing. And he does the will of the Father. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. So now, he's not just a prophet, but he's a man from God. And when they hear this, they say, you were born entirely in sins. And are you teaching us? So they put him out. They kick him out. Now, the natural reaction there would have been how awful, how terrible, because this was more than just religious. This was social. They kicked this man out of the synagogue. But we're going to see in a moment that that is very much the context as we go into John chapter 10. The Lord goes and finds this man, and he says, Do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he's the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Then the Lord says in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have, have no sin. But since you say we see, your sin remains. And now, right from here, we're going to continue right along. We're not going to do what you and I do and go home for a few months and then open up on a nice night before going to sleep and read John 10. <laughs> we're going to look at the context here because he's continuing this discussion with the Pharisees. And he says, truly, truly, I say to you, I didn't know this till last night, Truly, truly, or maybe your Bible says verily, verily, 25 times that phrase is used, always in John, and always in the middle of a conversation, never in a brand new one. And so now, we can take a closer look here and start to consider a little more of this context of these beautiful words in John 10. 
And of course, I have tried to say, we always read them for their precious value, but the conversation is public, and we're going to see that right after. And then a few verses later, it's John 10, where there's the second attempt to stone the Lord. So let's read now our passage, and we won't get that far today, perhaps. So we'll read now John 10, 1 through 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. So we often stop there, because there's so much to appreciate, but look what happens next. In 19, a division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? That's, that's one side of it. They say he's possessed. They say he's insane. But look what those say that are in favor in 21. Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon-possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? That's interesting, isn't it? That those who are favorable to the Lord's words actually don't use in their argument anything he just said. Of all the teaching about the Good Shepherd, they, they refer back to him opening the eyes of the blind man from chapter 9. And we should have read a bit more because the Lord will say a few more words here about him being the shepherd and then a dramatic ending. And we can stop in 31, although clearly we could keep going. In 22 then, at that time the feast of the dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. But you do not believe, because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. So in John 8, when he said, I am, before Abraham was born, I am, they picked up stones. And now when he says, I and the Father are one, they pick up stones again to stone him. So let's go back now and consider what the Lord is teaching here about being the good shepherd. First, we'll just go over the the natural picture. He called it a figure of speech. Perhaps other versions will call it a a parable. And I, I looked this up a little bit about the meaning of that word. Uh, and this is one, one writer put it this way. He said, a metaphor is an implied comparison. Like when the Lord said to Herod, go tell that fox. So Herod is a fox, the way he put it, an implied comparison. A simile is an expressed comparison. His appearance was as lightning. That's not is, but as. So that's a simile. An allegory may be defined as an extended metaphor. And that's what we have here, an extended metaphor. The Lord as the good shepherd. And a parable is an extended simile. But we know in John, there are no parables. The synoptic gospels have all the parables. So anyway, let's go over the picture of the sheep and the shepherd. And, and this is, is very nice to, to visualize. Although I have, I have not been a traveler and seen these things with my own eyes, being suburban here in Connecticut. So the shepherd brings his sheep into the sheepfold, an enclosed area where they're enclosed by stones or with some kind of fencing. But other shepherds also come, and they bring their sheep to the sheepfold. And they, they come to bring their sheep there so they're safe at night. And then by day, they lead them out to pasture. So when they arrive at night or in the evening, the doorkeeper or the porter, he opens the door to them, and his job is to guard them at night. And the shepherd then will go somewhere to sleep. So when the shepherd arrives in the morning at the sheepfold, the doorkeeper recognizes the shepherd and opens the door. But remember, there's not only his sheep, but many others in there. So the shepherd then calls his sheep. He calls out, and then his own sheep respond, and they come and follow him. Um, If a stranger comes in and calls to the sheep, they don't follow the voice of strangers. They only follow the voice of the shepherd. This would be wonderful to see if we were to go to a sheepfold and see three or four flocks and then have one shepherd come. Sometimes they might be marked. I have actually seen them in Ireland. I have to go back, take that back. I have seen them. And they're very beautiful, except for the neon blue streaks that they (laughs) mark them with. Uh, But I have seen them there. Uh, But it would be beautiful to hear a shepherd call out and then have only his own sheep come out and follow him out. So this is the picture of the sheep and the sheepfold. And we have to uh, consider then uh, what, is, what is meant by these, by these figures. And in my understanding, this would be the way we could describe it, that the sheepfold is Judaism. And the thieves and the robbers were the Jewish leaders. The shepherd is Christ, the good shepherd. The doorkeeper, I have read two different answers, and I think there's merit to both, and maybe not even one or the other. I have read it was John the Baptist who opened the door, 
preparing the way for the Lord to come and present himself as the shepherd of the sheep. And I have also read that it was the Holy Spirit. And it doesn't, when you think about it, it doesn't have to be one or the other. You, we could say that the Holy Spirit was certainly using John. But the Jewish leaders were bad shepherds. And we need to go back and see that this was not a new thing, that this had gone on for centuries. So I want to read a few verses from the major prophets here that speak of this. Um, you don't have to turn to the first couple because there'll be a lot of turning. But Isaiah verse, uh, chapter 40, verse 11 says, uh, first we want to speak of the positive verses, a few of God being a shepherd to his people. And so we know the famous verse, of course, Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. But there's a few more lovely psalms that speak of God as a shepherd. Psalm 28, verse 9, says, Be their shepherd also, and carry them forever. Psalm 80, verse 1, O give ear, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. Then Isaiah 40 and verse 11. Like a shepherd, he will tend his flock. In his arm, he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. Those are lovely verses speaking of God being a shepherd to his people. And the leaders of Israel, they were supposed to be shepherds, but they had failed. So listen to these verses from Jeremiah 23. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. You have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I am about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds. Now, let's look at a longer one even, and we'll turn here because it's a... 10 verses long. Ezekiel 34 is addressed to the shepherds. Ezekiel 34. And I'll give you a moment to turn there. Ezekiel 34. And we're going to read verses 1 through 10. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to those shepherds, Thus says the Lord God, Woe, shepherds of Israel, who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with the wool. You slaughter the fat sheep without feeding the flock. Those who are sickly, you have not strengthened. The diseased, you have not healed. The broken, you have not bound up. The scattered, you have not brought back nor have you sought for the lost. But with force and with severity you have dominated them. They were scattered for lack of a shepherd, and they became food for every beast of the field and were scattered. My flock wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. My flock was scattered over all the surface of the earth, and there was no one to search or seek for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord, surely because my flock has become a prey. My flock has even become food for all the beasts of the field for lack of a shepherd. And my shepherds did not search for my flock, but rather the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Think of the man born blind. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will demand my sheep from them and make them cease from feeding sheep. So the shepherds will not feed themselves any more, but I will deliver my flock from their mouth so that they will not be food for them. These Jewish leaders were bad shepherds. And the Lord is presenting himself here in contrast to them here in John 10. Now you've noticed as the Lord is giving this story, there are a few different figures that contrast with the shepherd. 
Let's just look again at the verses of the thief and the shepherd. He says in 1 and 2, the thief climbs up some other way, but in 2, the shepherd enters by the door. The Lord came to the sheep, the lost sheep of the house of Israel, by the door. He was the legitimate shepherd. He did not climb in or use any secretive or subtle tactics. And I want to read what William Kelly wrote. He said, he entered in himself by the door, not of the sheep, of course, but by the door into the sheepfold. He entered in according to each sign and token, moral, miraculous, prophetic, or personal, which God had given to his ancient people to know him by. But enter as he might, the people who broke the law refused the shepherd. And the end of it was that he leads his own sheep outside, himself going before them. But the Lord, by his virgin birth, by being from Bethlehem, by coming out of Egypt, by being from the line of David, by his sinless life, and on and on and on, he was the rightful one to be their shepherd. The thief was the one who climbs up some other way, but the shepherd enters by the door. Now down to verse 8. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. And then in 10, the thief, who is the enemy of our souls, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. Just note the contrast for this morning. Now, I'd like to say a couple words about verse 8 while we just dwell on the, the thief compared to the shepherd. And in verse 8, the Lord says, All who came before me are thieves and robbers. Now, I'd like to suggest that that can be looked at in two ways, chronologically and metaphorically. So there had been false shepherds that had come before the Lord Jesus in time, that had claimed that they would lead the people, and all they had led them into was trouble. Uh, this actually comes up in the book of Acts when Peter's preaching Christ and the people are reacting. Uh, if we turn to Acts 5 for a moment, we're going to read Gamaliel's counsel. Peter had just finished preaching one of his sermons about the Lord, saying that he was a prince and a savior. And we're going to read Gamaliel's counsel. And I believe the context here is the idea that they don't like hearing this preaching of Jesus, and they're debating whether he's another one of these false messiahs, false shepherds. So notice what Gamaliel says. And 33, they, they were cut to the quick and intended to kill them. They didn't like Peter's message. But 34, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, now this would have been before the time of Christ, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody, we might say, claiming to be a shepherd. And a group of about 400 men joined up with him, but he was killed. And all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. Doesn't that seem to fit our context? Dispersed, scattered. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away some people after him. He too perished, and all those who followed him were what? Scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. 
But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. So that's interesting, right? That these false claimants, their followers, were dispersed and scattered. They were thieves and robbers. They had come before Christ chronologically. But there's another way we can look at it, because in the picture that the Lord is giving, when the shepherd comes back to the sheepfold and the doorkeeper opens, it's a picture of the morning. And those who've come before him in the morning are those who've come at night. And they've attempted to steal the sheep. And in that sense, the shepherd has returned in the morning. And those who've come before if they've come for the sheep, they were the thieves and the robbers. So that's the first comparison, the thief and the shepherd. Let's just notice the next one now, the stranger and the shepherd. And we just read four and five again. And four, and we'll go back up to three for context, even verse two. He who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep, to him the doorkeeper opens because he recognizes him. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. So a stranger does not necessarily have to be someone evil. If I were to go to the sheepfold, any sheepfold, anywhere, and call out, I should expect to be ignored because they would not know my voice. It's not that melodic anyway. But the stranger and the shepherd are different in the voice. The sheep know the voice of the shepherd, but not the voice of the stranger. Another comparison, and we're going to come back to that one, the stranger and the shepherd. Let's go down from 11 through 14. We have another comparison with the hireling or the hired hand. Let's read 11 through 14, noticing this comparison. In 11, the Lord says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me. What a contrast there. The hired hand is not the owner. He does not have a heart for the sheep, a, a deep care for them. So when trouble comes, he flees. But our Lord Jesus is not like that. He owns his sheep. He knows them. He cares for them. He has a heart for them. It's interesting that the Lord chose this figure of speech. And it was interesting that his people from all the way back in Genesis were shepherds. They knew to care for sheep. They knew what it was. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, when Jacob goes down to Egypt, he tells Pharaoh that they are shepherds. David himself was a shepherd. Moses spent 40 years being a shepherd. And these great leaders, before they could learn to lead people, they had to learn to care for sheep. And sheep are a very interesting type of animal. I have read that they are helpless. They, they need the care of the shepherd from their first day until the last. All throughout their life, they need, they need that care. But the Lord is not like the hireling. He is the good shepherd. So now, let's go back and look at the 
verses 3 and 4 a bit more. And maybe we'll finish with these couple of verses here. We read that he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Another thing about shepherds and their sheep is they often give names to their sheep. <laughs> and they base them on the sheep's character or the mannerisms of the sheep or maybe something about how they look. And our Lord gave names to a few of the disciples. He said to Simon, you shall be called Cephas, Aramaic for stone. James and John, he calls them the sons of thunder. And Saul became Paul, whose name means small or least. And, and Saul would later call himself least of the apostles. He goes on ahead of them. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Uh, one thing absent from this, because some of the scholars would give sh stories about sheepdogs and, and, and their role, how they circle around the sheep and they bark at them and help guide them in. But there's no sheepdogs in this passage. Notice that absence. And what it, because I believe it really fits the Lord's character. What a sheepdog does is it nips at the sheep's feet, drives them. But that's not the Lord's way with us in our walk with God. He does not drive us to maturity. He leads us. And that's very precious. And the sheep follow him because they know his voice. And we'll just finish this morning with a couple stories about uh, sheep and their shepherds. During World War I, there were some Turkish soldiers in Palestine, and they tried to steal a flock of sheep from a hillside near Jerusalem. Wartime, you got to do these things, right? They probably need food. So the shepherd actually had been asleep, and he awoke to find his flock being driven off. And he had a problem because he was no match for the Turkish army, however many of them were. They were armed. He had his staff. But he had something they didn't have, simply his voice. The shepherd simply called out, and despite all those soldiers with all their weapons, the sheep listened, and they came back to their owner. And there was nothing that those Turkish soldiers could do <laughs> because the sheep knew the voice of their shepherd. Another story like that, there was a Scottish traveler who went to the Holy Land, and he, it sounds like he was curious about this phenomenon. So he talked this Jerusalem shepherd into changing clothes. You wear my clothes and I'll wear yours. So the Scottish visitor puts on the shepherd's clothes and he tried to draw them to follow him. Called out to them. Maybe he waved his staff around, whatever. And they refused. He looked apart, but they refused. And the Jerusalem shepherd, now dressed like a Scotsman, called out, and they followed at once, knowing the voice, once again, of their shepherd. And so we'll have to stop today, before, and maybe in two weeks we can pick up more with the, the whole section of 1 through 18. Uh, I know I dwelt a long time on the context but the Lord is here speaking to a, not just his own disciples, but a Jewish audience presenting himself unlike the Pharisees and the chief priests and the scribes, that he is the good shepherd. And 
Some were against him, some were inclined to believe him because they had seen him heal the man born blind. He had been kicked out of the synagogue. But when we go back here to verse 3, think of the blind man now. To him the doorkeeper opens, the good shepherd, and the sheep hear his voice. And he calls his own sheep by name, including this blind man, and leads him out. And so I would just ask you to, along with me, to take this question to our hearts. Do we recognize the voice of the shepherd? And so may we go back and look again at this passage, and I hope we can continue in a couple of weeks' time, Lord willing. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus that he was the one faithful to you. And Father, how you were the shepherd to your people in Old Testament times, that your son could now come and rightfully say here in this chapter that he indeed is the good shepherd. And Father, we look forward to learning more of this good shepherd that knows his own by name and leads them out they know his voice and that he came that they would have life and have it to the full and that he would lay down his life for them. Father, look at us here today. We are not ashamed to be compared to sheep. Father, for we have gone astray. But your son was like that one who went and searched for the one who went astray. And Father, in our hymns this morning, we sang of being on his shoulders in one of the hymns. Father, truly each one of us can say that the Lord Jesus is our good shepherd. He has put each one of us on his shoulders and brought us back. So Father, we give you thanks for him, our good shepherd, and we pray in his name. Amen.